book of Hebrews chapter number 10. And I just want to say what a joy it is for the men who lead us in worship and the reading of the scripture and, and, uh, and prayer week after week. And I'm so thankful for uh, just their ministry to us. The book of Hebrews chapter number 10. <clears throat> Me begin by reading um, verses 19 through verse 25. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled from clean, or with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Well, the Bible tells us that day drawing near, we have great hope and consolation in Jesus Christ, who will appear a second time, verse 28, and not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. With that, let me just uh, go to the Lord. Father, we thank you for this day. Thank you for this passage. Just pray that you'd bless our hearts. Speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. I read an article this past week that it rained the first time in Greenland. It never happened before, and scientists are worried that uh, the ice which will form from the rainwater will be darker than the white ice from the snow and therefore absorb light and maybe speed up some kind of thawing effect and instead of reflect the light. I'm not sure if you read that. I think the New York Times kind of uh, did their own spin on that. You might also find it interesting that one of the mysteries in geology, at least in the Grand Canyon as far as it's concerned, is that there are more than a billion years of missing rocks and formations. That is, if you believe in a billion years. Uh, This became apparent when someone noticed that rocks dating about 1.4 to 1.8 billion years old were stacked beside of rocks dating only to 520 million years. And they couldn't figure out where the, where the middle part was and, and how all of that worked out. And so that's just one of the mysteries that geologists are trying to uncover. Interestingly enough, I found out that television was invented only two years after sliced bread. That's pretty interesting, isn't it? Some of you might be interested in the fact that there's a McDonald's on every continent except Antarctica. So uh, there will be food wherever you go. You know, many things we take in in life, information, especially in the day we live in, uh, has very little consequences on our day-to-day lives unless you like McDonald's and travel all over the globe. They don't ask anything from us more than just the amusement that they create in our minds and in our hearts. They, uh, they give us a little uh, response like, well, that's very interesting. 
And then you go on about your life the way it was, untouched and unbothered by the, what you just heard. Uh, we live in an age that just con- constantly gives out and we constantly take in. And, and in many cases, what we take in, uh, we remain intact the same way we were. It may be surprising when you get to the book of Acts in chapter number 2 as Peter begins to stand up on the day of Pentecost and he begins to preach. And really, you read his sermon in Acts 2. We won't go through the length of it. It's worth going back to visit in your own time. But, but he is just giving a description of who Jesus is and what the Holy Spirit and the promise that God had given uh, to the nation of Israel and, and how that it is here and describing how that the Jews had killed him and how that Jesus was raised from the dead. What is remarkable is in the midst of the sermon, the men uh, are, are said to, uh, the men were said to be cut to the heart, verse 36 of chapter 2, and they respond, brothers, what shall we do? The word of God is like that. It's described as being alive, active, sharp, uh, not just a, a declaration of information, but something that, that demands a response and ask of us something, acknowledgement. In this case, to these men, it was that they are to repent and believe and be baptized. We are called to hear the word. Often throughout the Bible, thus says the Lord, the Old Testament prophet would say, and the men would pipe up to hear what the Lord would say. And, and, but we're also reminded that we're to take Uh, We're to take careful attention to how we hear it. It is more than just listening, isn't it? In fact, the Hebrew writer reminds us earlier in his letter to us that the Old Testament saints, they heard the word of God, but it was not mixed with faith. That that hearing which they heard, the words which was spoken to uh, to them was calling on them, drawing out of them a response, and that response that they gave was one of of stiff-neckedness or hard-heartedness or dull of hearing because they did not believe the word that was given so they did not obey it. Paul tells Timothy that in his last letter to him that the word of God is able to make us wise unto salvation. It is from the word of God that faith comes. We read in Romans chapter number 2, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. How shall they believe without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless he's been sent? But we also come to understand that the word of God is given to us and uh, not just in making us wise unto salvation, but, but setting our, our, our footsteps right. It becomes and, and stands as the guide in this life. As the psalmist said, is the light to my path. It is the word of God that is given to us for, uh, or God has given us everything through his word for life and godliness. And it is through that that he guides us and tells us what following Christ looks like. And the word of God, especially the gospel, calls for a response. Then sets the pattern for how to live as a redeemed people of God. And that's exactly what he's doing here in the book of Hebrews. He's been speaking about all the way from the beginning of this book up till now about who Jesus is and giving interesting facts and how that looks, what it means. And in the midst of that, he is, he is coming to this place and calling for them to, to act upon, to respond to all that has been said. We'll look at that in just a moment. 
But even on the outset of that, I'm reminded of Sinclair Ferguson's words when he says, it is right in saying that we do not do seriousness very well. The very fact that God calls a response and that we're asked uh, to be more of an active listener than just passive in the sense of just hearing what is being said is, is a very serious business. And you see that in chapter number 10. In the first part of that we read in verse 19 through 25, we, we see exhortations set in a positive light as the writer is moving them along in this, this encouraging um, statement of let us. As if to come alongside of and say, let's do this. Let's come along and be obedient and respond to all that God has given us. All that God has said to us. Showing his pastor's heart and, and really the intent of the gospel message itself. But he also says, we won't look at it today, but he also says beginning in verse 26 and on through a, a serious warning that, that when we don't respond to the gospel, that warning which is set against us. Which is, as its climax in verse 31, if you want to look at it, is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. For those who would hear the gospel and that gospel would fall upon deaf ears or or be left in some kind of just information, not knowing what to do with it and, and just walk away from it, he gives a sharp warning. And yet here before that, he sets for us both appropriate response and not just the appropriate response for salvation when we hear the gospel, but really the pattern of life for the church itself. And how we are to live and function in the world that God has called us out of and sent us into. He says that beginning in verse number 19 of his commands, it begins with this call to draw near. Now verse 19 through 21, he gives us a picture of the gospel. He speaks in verse number 19 of the death of Christ and, and having that boldness to enter into this holy place by his blood. Speaking of Christ who gave his life for us. Verse number 20, he speaks of Christ now becoming a new and living way that he opens. Speaking of the resurrection of Christ, his, his life now. He is now living and because he lives and he is in the presence of God interceding for us, we have access. He is the way into that place. And verse 21, he speaks of that ascension, the work in which he does now, that great high priest over the household of God. And he brings us to the difference between just random facts to, to what these facts are meant to do for us, what they call out of us. And he says in verse number 22, in the first of these, he says, let us draw near with a true heart, full assurance of faith. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us draw near, believing, confident of being accepted by God. There's an interesting passage in the book of Isaiah I'll remind you of. And Isaiah itself is an interesting work that Greg had, had been taking us through. And maybe one day we'll get to the end of that. Uh, I guess Wednesday nights he taking us through that. And yet what you find in the beginning of Isaiah, God calling the nation of Israel to come to him and reason together because of their sinfulness. Come to be healed. And beyond that, you see how the Assyrians are coming and God's judgments coming all through the first part of the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah 40, you see God in his mighty 
God coming in all of his might and splendor. But you get to verse number 55, and, and at this, he gives this great invitation, and you might remember it, when he says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come and buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Isn't that a great invitation? He doesn't say, come to those of you who can afford it. Come to those of you who got yourself kind of straightened up and you're in a position. Maybe, maybe you're, you're squared away enough to where you can, you can manage this. He says, come. This invitation to come to him and come to these waters and come and buy without money and without price. Of course, we read in the New Testament that great invitation as well in Matthew 11, verse 28, don't we? When he says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to me, Jesus says, and I will give you rest. All he has been talking about in verses 19 through 21 and beginning in verse number 23 is that God has provided everything to grant access to himself. He has secured it. He has, he has brought about a way in which we might come. That invitation that he gives both in Isaiah and Matthew is not just an empty kind of thing that we sometimes say in the South. I, I notice that you don't say that up here as much. Come by anytime you want. What we mean is call and make sure we don't have anything to do and maybe we'll work out an agreement. Because that's what you say, right? You've you, you got to say something when you leave. Just come by or whatever it might be. You don't mean it for the most part. But God is not inviting us like that. What you see in his invitation to us, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, that he has made provisions, he has made a way that we might come to him. That we might come to him. And, and he does so through a language which is kind of odd to us. We don't speak in that way very often, except when we're studying the Bible together. You know, we hear these things and they're described for us, but he talks about a veil and a high priest, and he talks about a new and living way and all these things that he mentions here, and that's kind of foreign to us. And some of you might have worked in an area where it was secure. You required a pass or a badge. Some of you were very excited when you were a young person and you got a job at a fast food restaurant and you could actually go behind the employee's only door and see what magic was going on behind the counter and realized it was not as exciting as you thought it was. Maybe that's why you don't eat McDonald's. There is that reality even in this world that we understand. There's places where you are not allowed to be. You don't belong. You don't have the access or the, or the privilege. It's not your position. You don't have the clearance to, to go into that place. And, and really what you find in the temple, in the tabernacle, is that same message. There are places to be and places not to be. And in the immediate presence of God in the most holy place was that place where you were not supposed to be. What we find is that only the high priest could go into that. Only he had access and so he's saying here that Jesus, this one that he's been talking about for 10 chapters, had, had access by virtue of his sonship to be in the presence of his father. Of his righteousness, of his own sacrifice, of his own calling here, he enters into the most holy place. And then he says in verses 19 through 21, he himself, verse 20, became that curtain. He became the access, the door, the way in which we could enter in. To put it another way, he has given us his access badge. So when you enter into the presence of God, you're not swiping, 
You're not swiping Greg Bastian, right? You're swiping Jesus Christ. We enter in through him. And he's saying that this is what God has done to us by, uh, through his son, that he has made a way for us through the, through the death and burial and the resurrection of his son. And, and because this access is granted to us, naturally the, the exhortation is, well, then come. Come. Why would you stay far off? Why would you you keep yourself outside of his presence and outside of his joy and outside of his fullness? Why would you not experience the forgiveness and and the fellowship which he offers and extends to us? Sometimes because we we misunderstand who it is we come to. Sometimes we think of a cruel God and someone who is, is always angry. And yet the writer reminds us that no, it's the throne of grace you come to. Not the throne of judgment and cruelty. Grace itself denotes that his favor is towards us. His intent is out of love and for our well-being. And truly it is, as we come before God, it is exposing, isn't it? Jesus warned us some of the reasons why people don't come is because they love darkness rather than light. For the very fact that as they come into the light, it exposes their sinfulness. It exposes their sin. It's easy to hide those things when you're in the dark and... And it's easy to explain away those things when you're not in the presence of God. And yet, and yet there is that reality. But all, isn't there a forgiveness to be found and peace to be found in the light? That in exposing our sins, we're not only exposed to our sins, but we're granted forgiveness of those sins. And the very thing that we, we try to fight for in our own flesh and, and in our own distractions is the very thing God offers us in his presence when we come. Forgiveness of sin. But not only does he say we come to the throne of grace, but he says we come to find help in our time of need. MacArthur, in his commentary on this section, listing several things required of us an appropriate response to the gospel and the first of that he says is understanding that we have needs understanding that we are in need we draw near to god because we understand our own insufficiency to be god for ourselves, and to meet our own need and deal with our own issues it is only in the presence of god do we find that help why would we not go Why do we withhold when we see that he calls us and invites us to come to him for help? Well, for some, because we don't realize we have a need, blinded to that fact. But there's something in this to remind us that it isn't just a response to the gospel. But it is the pattern of the church, the pattern of the Christian life. How are we to to be strong in a world that is set against us? How are we to be strong and fight against the sin in our own flesh and, and the temptations that surround us? We find that strength in coming to God and drawing near to him. It isn't just that we come to find one felt need. It is we come for all of our needs to be met in him in his presence. Said another way, as you look at the tense of the statement here, it is to keep coming, to keep coming. And dear Christian, isn't that the struggle in life? It is possible, wouldn't you agree, that that we come to God and we confess him as Lord and we, we turn from our sins and we say we believe in him and yet turn to the world every time a problem arises in your life? 
looking for, for this fix and that fix and this fix and, and very seldom or if we do, it is always the last option. That's what we say. That well, All we can do now is pray about it, right? How many of you said that? Let's be honest. And yet he says, no, come draw near to him. Don't you see he's given us access through his, his son that he gave for us. He's opened a door for us. We're welcomed into his presence. We're accepted before him. We come that we might find grace and help in our time of need. No wonder the psalmist, as he writes in Psalms 95, he says, Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord and let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. We're to come to him. And when you know you're accepted, we come with worship on our lips, thanksgiving in our hearts because we are, we're welcomed. He says, notice how we're to come in verse 22, that we're to come to him, we're to draw near, and that's the idea, we're to, to approach, we're to draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. And later, he, earlier, he describes that as, in, in this way, we're to come with confidence. And to put it another way, we're not to, to consider God as, as stingy or off from us because he gave his only begotten son for us. He will receive us. We're to come as those who have believed the message of the gospel. We're to come as those who have been accepted. Now, how do we do that? Well, let me just give you two answers. I think it's very common, and, and the one is the most clearest form that I can think of. We're to come, and we come to God in prayer, don't we? We call on Him. We commune with Him. We speak to Him. We, we, we sit down, whether it's in the quietness of our closet, going down the road, whether it's walking or hiking or whatever it is you're doing. It is this, we, we come having heard that God has made a way and we, we believe that God has made a way and then we, we call on the name of the Lord. We pray to Him. We fellowship with Him in prayer. We come knowing that He hears us, knowing that He cares for us, and knowing that He answers us. We draw near to God. Not only do we draw near to God through prayer, but we draw near to God as we come to his word. Prayer is us speaking to God oftentimes. Coming to his word is hearing him speak to us. It's to inform us and teach us, to guide us. We come, we draw near to God. And he's saying that we're to live a life like that. What does it to look like to be a Christian in the 21st century? What does it look like a people who draw near continually to God? to find grace and help and strength in our time of need. And secondly, he goes on and says in verse number 23, not only do we draw near with a true heart, that is, with confidence, with faith, he says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Now, hope transcends the English language today, which tends to reflect on wishing, as you know, and really our, our confidence or, or the comfort that hope gives to us is as much as the uh, is, is as much as the dependency of it coming true or the certainty about it. Some things we hope for which we know will not happen. Right? And some things we hope for that we got a pretty good idea that will happen. And yeah, the Bible speaks of hope as is something more than that. 
He doesn't call us to to lay hold of something that is kind of true, maybe right, and might work out in the end. He calls us to lay hold of something that is sure, that is concrete, that is fixed. That's why he's been describing what Christ has done for us and, and that he will come again and save those who eagerly wait for him. Verse number 28. And so he speaks of hope in this, this second coming, the full manifestation of all that Jesus Christ has done for us. And, and can I say this? It is exciting, but we haven't seen the half of what God has in store for us. And some of you have experienced a lot of joy in your life, the goodness of God, his favor, felt his presence and how he's worked in your life and done many things imagine what it'll be like when you see him face to face and he says that kind of hope not a hope i hope i make it not a hope that i hope my works good works will outdo my bad works no hoped in the fact that he has by this one single offering perfected for all times those who are being sanctified verse number 14 and so he gives us this, this kind of concrete example, this, this desire, this thing which we long for. It is secured in Calvary. It is fixed and grounded in the gospel. It is, and it encompasses the sum of the promises of God. And in that way, it keeps us looking beyond the trial and persecution in what you and I face to that day which will, which will, will come about. And though they tarry, he says in Habakkuk, they will not fail. That kind of hope. And when we describe hope in this, this way, he reminds us earlier, turn back with me in chapter number 3 of Hebrews. He speaks about our response to it, or, or this, um, this holding fast. Verse number 6, he describes... Christ being faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. What is he saying? He's not saying that you hold fast so that you might be saved. Really, it's the idea that because we are saved, the evidence of that is that we will hold fast. Again, referring in verse number 14, of the same chapter for we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end he's calling the church to hold on to what you've heard hold on to the gospel hold on to what has been preached to you and taught to you hold on to it and those that hold on will prove to be the true household of God they will share in Christ and going back to Hebrews chapter number 10, we might think that this is not really a big deal in and of itself. And I guess you could say that. Why would you say, hold fast the confession of our faith? Isn't that a pretty easy thing? Well, it might be. Except for the fact that we have struggles. We're waiting. We have temptations. And we live in a world that keeps pulling us away from the reality and the substance of that hope. And and at times we might feel the frustration and we we see that that the church and the the leaders and and teaching speaks of eternity. Paul speaks of eternity in 2 Corinthians and, and we're dealing with the here and now. 
We got bills due and and life's messed up and kids are disobedient and and we're just bored sometimes and all of this pulls at us and pulls at that steadfastness which the writer is calling for. You and I face it in many different levels. Because a part of me, as I read this in verse number 22, I wonder why do we need to say that at all? People hear the gospel and they follow Jesus. And yet that isn't always the case. I think church history, your own immediate history and people in your life, maybe even the temptation in your life right now, prove that the otherwise. People hear the gospel, they assent to the gospel, they fall walk away from the gospel they all of this going on back and forth all of this wavering and yet we live and we're called to hold fast in the midst of this kind of opposition now let me just give you a few reasons if you're taking note uh, the opposition that we face and why we were called to hold fast one is some people find attraction to the latest thing you hear the gospel, and that's great, and, and then you hear something else, and that's great, and maybe you try to mix those together, maybe not, but you just have a fascination. The, the latest thing coming out, whether it's in the government or in the world or in society or in religious circles, it's, it, you're just caught up with the most fascinating thing that comes. And in many ways, the most fascinating thing kind of dulls what God has already said, Right? And so we have to keep chasing the new thing that comes out. The Galatian church was subject to this. Founded on the gospel, founded on faith in Christ and faith alone. And then the next thing you know, Paul writes them. He says, what happened to you? You started well. Look at where you're at. And if a church that Paul planted can do that, then, then we're susceptible to the same thing in our day. Filled with mystical uh, mysticism, conspiracy theories, and the wisdom of the world, that attraction to the latest thing. The secondly, we find the opposition in the beauty of skepticism and openism. I, openism isn't a word. I know that. You can email me that later, but you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Just keep an open mind, guys. After all, believe what you believe, but don't be so dogmatic. Don't be so, like, rigid and firm. And one of the most celebrated thoughts in this world is skepticism. Where it's okay to have beliefs, but don't hold on to them very tightly because, after all, you hold yourself out till something else better comes along, or it may be proven wrong, you may be taken in and shown a fool, whatever it is. It is celebrated in the world, a, a world we live in without conviction. The only conviction that the world hates is a conviction that is rooted in the Word of God. Generation after generation, they have their convictions. It's all rooted in man's wisdom, none of it rooted in God's wisdom. And they say the reason is, well, you need to just keep an open mind. They prove what Paul tells Timothy in chapter 3, that they're ever learning but never coming to the knowledge of truth. We hear the word of God, we hear that, and we say, well, that's your interpretation. I mean, you can almost read a passage. And not even comment on the passage and someone will say that's your interpretation. Why? Because we cannot be dogmatic in this age. There's a beauty in that from the world's perspective. Thirdly, the opposition we face in this life is weariness from life itself and weakness. 
We just get tired. How many of you have been there? Trials that you go through seem like they never end. They're worrisome. And in that weakness, that temptation to turn away from God or, or to accuse God or to walk away from the faith, it is, it is a real danger which we face. But the third opposition we face in this world is monotony and formalism. You might recall the church at Ephesus in the book of Revelation and all that they were doing. And yet in the midst of it, in the midst of all the worship, Jesus condemns him and says, you've left your first love. You go through the motions, but your heart is not in it. You, you do this and you do this and you do this, but you're drifting far away in so much that if you don't repent, I'll remove your witness in this world. You see, we, we face that. In this life, in the 21st century, just as much as anyone else did, Jesus witnessed it in his own ministry when things were getting tough and hard. You remember he says, talked about his flesh being food and his blood being drink, and, and the people's like, this guy's crazy. Who can, who can listen to this? It's too hard. We can't understand. They all walk away. And Jesus looked at his disciples, will you go also? You remember what they said? To whom will we go? Now that's a conviction. That's a confession, isn't it? You have the words of eternal life. You see, he's calling us to, to hold on to our confession. Not to waver, not to let it bend and go back and forth, but to, to hold on to it and to, to stay firm in it. The confession is, is, in one way, we look in our modern day as a body of truth. It's an assertion, a, a statement about Jesus, who he is and what he's done. And, and you know the Westminster Confession, the Heidelberg Confession, and, and what they've done, they expanded it. And they said, this is what we believe about all these topics and all these subjects. And so, in one way, he's saying, hold on to what you've received, the truth that you've received. But, but there's something else in that confession. It, it calls for a, a personal involvement in it not what the the church confesses not to live a life studying about what christianity confesses but he's saying that this is your confession what you confess we're to hold on to it hold fast that confession of our hope without wavering that this is what i believe this is what God has said. I'm reminded of Romans 10 as we speak about that. And as he says, you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus. Uh, you confess your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. What a glorious word. Confess him. The church had done that. He speaks about that later on in the chapter. How they lived that confession out. But it had laid hold of them. And he's saying to them, lay hold of it and don't lose it in the chaos of this world. And all of the distractions you face and all of the opposition, lay hold of it. Why? Well, because it was a confession given to them by God. It was his message. The most beautiful thing in Romans 1 is that God's gospel... God's message, God's resolution to come and to deliver us and not man's invention. 
But secondly, he tells us in the text, the reason we're to hold fast to this confession, we know we face the opposition and causing us to waver, but he says, because he who promised is one. You could say it in this way because it's true. Or that there's nothing else worth holding on to with such intensity, such tenacity. Remember in one place Jesus said you could gain the whole world and lose your soul and what profit is there? Oh, but to lose your life for my sake in the gospel, what have you gained? Everything. Everything. There's nothing else worth holding on to. Nothing else at that same value. Nothing else at that same splendor and worth and, and power. And he calls us to bring it back to mind. Let us hold fast to that confession. God is faithful. He has promised to keep you. He has promised to hold you fast. He has promised to sustain you. He has promised he will return. He has promised that he is faithful and that he will comfort you. Don't you see in all of that, he's going over and over. We see the word of God bringing us back to the faithfulness of God. Faithfulness of God. And how many of you this morning have not found Christ faithful? And that he is able to fill out and bring to pass his word and promises to you. And how often and how many of you have not found the father attentive to your needs? As you come to him in prayer, you can answer and testify one by one how God has met those needs. And he goes on, and we could ask, how often have we not found the Holy Spirit able to comfort us in the midst of our own sorrow and depression? He's saying, hold on, don't you see? Because what you're holding on to is from God. He's faithful. It is true. It is sure. Now, thirdly, he says, and I won't go into that. I want to leave that for the next time we... Meet together, he says, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. You could sum it up this way. He's calling the church to not only draw near to God. Since Christ has made access, why don't you come? Since Christ has made access, come. Since there's a way open for us, draw near to him. And, and I would say that to you this morning, if you're a sinner and you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, he's saying to you through his word and through the power of the Holy Spirit, even in your own heart, does he not convict you? Does he not remind you that you're standing afar off and that, 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 that all of this is foreign to you and, and the invitations is still extended? Come. And all of us. To continue to come and draw near to find health and strength. That is a pattern of our life. But not only to come and draw near, but come believing, trusting, and holding on to the gospel in which he's delivered to us, Jesus Christ. There is no other name under heaven whereby we can be saved except the name of Jesus Christ. Do you know that? Do you believe that? Can you look at life and death the unknown that's ahead of you and find comfort and confidence in that. Someone asked me years ago when I was working and I was not a very good Christian. I'm not a very good Christian now, if you could say it that way. 
He says he, he began witnessing to me, which I thought was really neat. I needed that. I needed to remind you that you're supposed to do that on the job. He said, how do you know you're saved? Because he asked me if I was a Christian. I said, sure, I'm a Christian. He said, how do you know? Well, there's a lot of answers you can give to that, and I'm sure I probably could give a lot more now than I did then. But I said, I've done what, all I know to tell him was I've done what the Bible told me to do. And I believe God will take care and stick up with his end. He'll be faithful to his word. I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And in doing that, I had that calm assurance that, yes, I have been saved. And, yes, I do have a home in heaven. And he's saying, no matter what happens in this life, no matter what you go through, no matter how high it gets and how low it gets, he says, hold on to that confession because he is faithful who's promised. He's not forgotten. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this morning that we've gathered together. Thank you for the encouragement of your word. You tell us all of what you've done for us, and then you invite us in into your presence. Lord, you call us, you command us to come and draw near to experience your grace and your mercy found at the altar of our Lord Jesus Christ and in your presence. Lord, I pray that everyone here has settled that in their own heart, in their own life. God, I pray for those here this morning who, who are in or out of the Christian faith. Maybe they're saved, maybe they're not saved, they don't know. And, and that they come back to this is the one simple message and that they would hold on to it. This is the means of salvation, Jesus Christ and in him alone. I pray that we would find comfort and confidence knowing that you are faithful to your word. And that you will sustain us in the days ahead until you come again. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.